prior to arriving in June to minister here on the mean streets of Santa Barbara, <laughs> we had spent the prior seven years ministering on the mean streets of Coronado. At least that's how I laugh about the good fortune we've had to share in the beautiful locations that we've been appointed, and I'm not going to complain to our bishop. When we arrived in Coronado, we learned that that church had a weekly uh, gathering for a Christian homeschool organization that helped uh, to teach their children a so-called biblical worldview rather than exposing them to a dangerous public school education. We discovered that the church library had copies of every book in the apocalyptic Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, and that that church in prior years had sponsored studies of another apocalyptic preacher. The church uh, also had hosted, uh, uh, during that time, a, a couple of women's Bible studies. For one of these uh, studies, the parachurch organization that trained the female leaders and provided the curriculum for that study believed that it was inappropriate, uh, because the Apostle Paul says so, to, uh, for women to teach men. Now, because all of these programs and studies were antithetical to what would be appropriate in a United Methodist context, Jen and I decided that we could not, in good conscience, make financial gifts to the church because some of what we gave would obviously underwrite ministries that we thought were inconsistent with the gospel. And in every church prior to Coronado, we had practiced uh, giving 10% of our income to support the church. And as many of you might know, 10% is actually a technical term. That is what a tithe is. Now, everything I just said is true. But there's one thing that is not. The fact is that we continued to give to that church for the seven years uh, that we were in ministry there, and we gave beyond a tithe when that church uh, had a million-dollar capital campaign. But I knew I had had my work cut out for me when I got there, and I did a lot of educating as to why those things were not appropriate, and the church evolved. But we gave from the beginning, in spite of our deeply held religious beliefs that conflicted with those ministries that I just shared about. Was it because I was the minister of the church? Uh, was it because there were a great deal of ministries at that church that we did feel good about supporting? Or was it because we felt we needed to be role models 
of financial stewardship? Well, maybe. But the reality is that I had adopted the practice of tithing three or four years before I even knew I would be going to seminary. Well before Jen and I met. The minister that I, uh, of the church that I was a part of at that time uh, uh, when I took up tithing uh, in El Centro uh, had given a powerful testimony one Sunday about how he and his wife had not been tithers because they gave so much in other ways to the church. So, you know, typically uh, ministry is not a a 40-hour-a-week job, and and the minister's wife also gets hooked in. Uh, You can talk to Jen about that later. And also because ministers usually don't have that big of a margin between their income and their expenses, especially when you consider seminary debt. You know, a master's degree, whether it's in whatever, is expensive, and sometimes master's degrees don't generate a lot of extra income in the case of ministers. But a kindly, uh, according to our pastor, a kindly parishioner in a church he had previously served invited he and his wife to try tithing, and, and told them how once they began, they would discover what a blessing it was to tithe because it wasn't about giving to the church. It was about enlarging their spiritual capacity, the spiritual capacity of the giver that happens when freely releasing a 10% tithe. Now, the minister of that church was the Reverend Lee Cunningham, who left El Centro to become the minister of St. Mark United Methodist Church, the church that we are currently merging with. And I did take up Pastor Lee's invitation to uh, begin tithing and discovered somehow that when we do that, we have more than enough and that there's a remarkable freedom, a freedom that eludes this wealthy man in our story from the gospel of Mark because he cannot accept that Jesus' invitation might actually be good for him. But that's getting to the end of the story. This story is uh, reported with only slight variations in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark, the story appears in what we might call the human relations chapter of Mark, Mark 10. In the first 10 verses of Mark 10, Jesus talks about marriage and divorce and Verses 13 through 16, Jesus talks about the inclusion of children in the kingdom of God, uh, portrayed on our beautiful stained glass window there. And then in verses 17 through 22, and continuing a little more, we have a story that deals with wealth and poverty, a story about class distinction. 
As Mark tells us, Jesus is setting off on a journey. We'll learn next week that that journey was towards Jerusalem, but Mark doesn't say it here. And, and he's interrupted by a man who comes up to him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's nothing uh, that indicates that this question is some sort of test or is inauthentic in any way. But Jesus' rejoinder, why do you call me good? There's no one but good but God alone, is sort of a way of asking this man if he really knows what he's saying and why he's saying it. Or is he just sort of a teacher's pet, you know? Good teacher. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, you know, that if we did that in class, uh, that would not be considered uh, appropriate. But anyway, Jesus re- then begins to respond to this question by reviewing some of the Ten Commandments. Now, some of us uh, will remember that when Moses is given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, they are given in two tablets. And what Jesus quotes here is from the second tablet, uh, not the first. The first tablet has to do with uh, how we relate to God rightly. And then the second tablet has to do with how we practice right human relationships. And so uh, perhaps Jesus assumes that this man already worships and honors God. And so he goes directly to the second tablet. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud and honor your father and mother. Now, one of the items Jesus mentions there isn't actually one of the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud. Neither Matthew nor Luke includes this, uh, do not defraud, this extra commandment that's added here. And um, one scholar says that Martin might have included do not defraud as the language, quote, seems distinctively related to the possible actions of a wealthy person who maintains or increases their wealth through injustice or other dishonest means. Can you imagine that, some already wealthy person? acting dishonestly to increase their wealth? (laughs) Yeah, I know it's hard. (laughs) Note uh, that the man, when he responds, he does not say, sometimes we overread the text, and he does not say that he's never violated any of the Ten Commandments. Rather, he says that he has kept all the commandments since his youth meaning most likely from the time of his bar mitzvah when he reached the age of accountability and in the Jewish tradition that was sometime around 13. And and then it's the age of accountability. And so what he's saying is, you you know, he's, he's not accountable for 
his indiscretions as a child, most of us probably dishonored our father and mother, right? Uh, but he's kept them since his youth. But there is one commandment that is not cited in any of the versions of the story that appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is the, co- uh, and it's missing from here, it's thou shalt not covet. Now, surely it is easier to say that one has not defrauded than it is to say that one has not coveted. And so at this point, the man probably thinks he's off the hook. I've kept all of those commandments. And then Jesus lovingly <laughs> lowers the boom. You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give to the poor, and then come follow me. And it's actually here, Mark's a great story here. Uh, It's a storyteller because this is the first time in the whole story that we learn that this man is wealthy and has a lot of possessions. Now, this might be overstating it, but I, I, I think it's probably right. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing here is equating any accumulation of wealth and possession as violating the commandment not to covet. That one does not become wealthy unless one covets money. And one does not have many possessions unless one covets material things. And as we read, it is this coveting that ends up being the one thing that makes it impossible for this man to follow Jesus. Now, let me return to the, what I was talking about earlier, about freely releasing or giving a tithe as a way to actually enlarge our spiritual capacity in reflecting on the story Uh, the rich young ruler, or the rich ruler, or the rich man. It's rich ruler in Luke, not in this story, sorry. First and foremost, had had Jen and I actually withheld our tithe in Coronado, it would have been putting our giving into a transactional category. We won't give unless we get what we want in return. And that's exactly what this man was doing in the story, right? What is the thing I must do in order to get eternal life? Now, speaking only for me here, not my lovely wife, I see that God gives to me even when God doesn't get what God might reasonably respect, uh, expect in return. Or let me put it this way. When I look at 
at what I do with some of the 90% of what we keep in our budget, I can see things that I regularly spend on that I'm not sure are good. I need coffee, yes. (laughs) Not sure that it qualifies as something that glorifies God. (laughs) But it sure helps keep my home sane. And church, thank you, Liz. (laughs) If I'm grumpy, they just say, get coffee, stat. So... A second related thought is that ever since uh, beginning to tithe, uh, it's been a priority practice. What that means is it's the first thing that we give out of what we get. First check, first electronic funds transfer at the first of the month. You know, we, we don't wait until we see how the budget works out at the end of the month because you know what would happen if we did? Well, again, I'll speak for myself. I know myself well enough to know that if we got to the end of the month, there would be not enough left to tithe. I would have found other coffee that I needed. And this connects to the last thing I would share. If you aren't a a tither, I I have really found that the best way to begin, the people ask me, I've had lots of people ask me, how do do we get there? And and I found the best place to start is not to think, what's the amount I'm going to give, but rather what is the percentage I'm going to give? And so, you know, if you give 2% to the church and you want to grow into tithing, give 4%. Now, I, I was young and stupid well, I still am, huh? Not young, but anyway. <laughs> um, and impetuous, and, and Pastor Lee shared his story. I had, like the disciple Peter, I dove in headlong. I began to tithe. But I think, um, I think that that's a big step for a lot of people. But let me end with this, because I think, about, uh, I think that talking about money and stewardship and giving to the church, it can stir up lots of stuff within us. I, I know pastors who, uh, who've been hectoring, you know, people to give and things. And that was the difference between what Lee did uh, when he gave his talk and what many other pastors do. And they, he wasn't hectoring, he was inviting. Just see if this works for you. But but I want to say this. It may not be that money and possessions are the thing that are getting in the way of your spiritual journey. It was the one thing for this man, but it might be something else that's getting in the way of growing your relationship with God. The one thing that challenges you might be praying faithfully. Maybe you just don't feel like you have a rich prayer life. The the one thing that might be challenging you might be (laughs) worshiping regularly. some, uh, Some mornings just getting up and having coffee sounds really good. And, 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 uh, not coming to church. One thing that, that uh, you might find challenging is serving those in need, right? You might look at somebody and say, well, they got there on their own. 
you know, and not have compassion. Uh, one thing that might challenge you might be uh, feeling like you don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know what it is. But for the, the, the man in this story, the one thing was wealth and possessions. And so it could be that too. I suspect that we all have just one thing, at least, that is getting in the way of enlarging our spiritual capacity when it comes to our relationship with God. And if you already have in mind what it is, I want to just tell you that you have at least two pastors who would love to sit down with you if you have questions about prayer or whatever and help with that one thing. It's not because we figured it all out. That's for sure. But we do have some ability to help people on their spiritual journey with their spiritual questions. And I just pray that you might, after today, say, you know, this one thing, I'd like to figure out how to do it. And I think you will find yourself blessed. Amen.